with just over one week until America decides who its next president is going to be. In the final presidential debate of the campaign, Joe Biden described his opponent as one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history, while Trump claimed he's done more for the African-American community in history, with the exception of Lincoln. On today's show, in an Irish exclusive, we speak with Madeleine Westerhout, personal assistant to President Trump during his first two years in office. Our panel analyzes the debate and questions the polls, and Shane Hannon recounts some of the biggest celebrity visits to the White House over the years, from Elvis to Princess Diana, the Donald versus Uncle Joe, the reality TV star versus the DC veteran, red versus blue. You're listening to News Talk, and this is Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hello everyone, I'm Simon Tierney and this is Race to the White House, News Talk's weekly show dedicated to the US election. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at NewstalkFM or at Tierney Simon. Now, the polls are consistently showing Biden with a generous national lead and a smaller lead or a dead heat in most of the battleground states and one or two states where Trump appears to have a small margin as well. But are the pollsters sleepwalking into another massive screw-up, just like they did in 2016 when they had Hillary leading on the eve of the election? Polling is an extremely tricky aspect of political science, but many on the right in America argue that much of the national and state polling is simply not representative of what the outcome of this election is likely to be. Rather than dismiss this theory like a lot of the media does, perhaps we should tread a little more carefully and dig a little deeper. Take the Trafalgar Group, for instance. This is one of the very few polling companies that accurately called the swing states of Florida, Pennsylvania and Michigan for Trump and not Hillary in 2016. This group adjusts its polling for what they describe as a social desirability bias. This concept assumes that a lot of Trump supporters feel stigmatised and suspicious of pollsters and are therefore unlikely to tell them who they are actually going to vote for. With this technique, and bearing in mind their success in predicting the 2016 election, the Trafalgar Group is currently calling the battleground states of Ohio, North Carolina and Florida for Trump and they're predicting an overall win for the incumbent. Now, to discuss these things, I'm joined as ever by my panel, Dr. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. If I can start with you, Graham, why should we trust the mainstream polls when they got it so wrong in 2016? And do you think we should be taking a closer look at fringe pollsters such as the Trafalgar Group? Um, well, again, we should trust them just to the point where they, they seem like they're uh, identifying a pretty strong trend. But we should definitely look at uh, pollsters who are um, on the fringes or have outlying results. Um, that's why sort of sites which aggregate all the polls like Real Clear Politics are just really, really helpful. And again, the more you engage with polls, the more you get to see the nuances of different polls. So the Rasmussen poll tends to skew Republican, it tends to come towards the sort of consensus a little bit towards the end of the election. 
But, you know, I mean, I think that's a perfectly possible scenario. I mean, if you look at the polls for those three states, they're very, very close. Um, and then it comes down to turnout. It comes down to any obstacles which are put in the way of people voting. And that's what did for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And, you know, the margin of error is big enough on these polls for all sorts of technical reasons, such that many states are well within the margin of error. So we should absolutely care about the hidden vote. One of the interesting questions is going to be, are the people who are going to vote for Trump now, are all the hidden voters now out in the open? You know, they've, they've been through all the things Trump has done over the last four years, and they're still okay with it. So they're, they're not afraid to say it out loud this time. Uh, to pollsters. Well, that's, to their a, that's a good question. And then the, 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 and then the second question is, and, you know, are they right to call the election for Trump? Well, that's a lot more difficult because Trump could win Ohio, uh, North Carolina and Florida and still lose if Biden wins Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. So um, that's something to bear in mind. And okay. again, there's some tightish polls in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, not quite so much. Uh, but again, the trend looks okay for Biden. But the big thing is turnout. If polls can have an effect on people's willingness to vote. And if the people think Biden's cruising to a win, they may stay home because it's going to be hard to vote this time around. So really anything can happen. And I'm not writing off that, that suggestion and that scenario at all. Okay, Greg, this idea of the social desirability bias, do you subscribe to the idea of the hidden Trump voter that Republicans that they don't respond to pollsters in the same way that Democrat supporters do. I think that's the case, you know, and I've read some things that argue otherwise and that, you know, some, some will argue that it's not as dramatic as it was in 2016, but it just, you know, anecdotally, it just seems like the, the risk of admitting that you support Trump is a lot greater now than it was four years ago. You know, so, you know, because now it's not that, people's opinions have changed because I think he polls basically around what he, you know, he actually polls higher than he did in, in uh, November of 2016 when he was in the low forties and now he's in the mid forties, but it's more the, you know, the, the cancel culture, the, you know, the, the shaming on college campuses, all that business has just gotten worse. So, you know, I would expect that there is some of that. Um, and that's why I think Trafalgar tries to get through that. Um, you know, but look, it, it's uh, Graham's right. It's it's all about turnout. It's just a, you know, because there's not a lot of persuadables right now. Um, I think that that turnout is critical. And in terms well, turnout of is size, looking big yeah. so far. I mean, there's 50 million well, yeah. Americans have already voted. Abs absolutely, and I, I was pleasantly surprised to see to see in Florida that Republicans have outvoted Democrats by 173,000, which which is rare. Usually. Democrats do much better in early voting as well in, as well as mail-in voting. So, so I was surprised at that. Um, okay. You know, the the numbers there's some there's there's definitely some odd things going on in terms of early voting and especially with registrations. The Republicans have done very well in some of these swing states with registrations. Well, you mentioned Florida, Greg. I was listening to one Democratic activist in Miami on the BBC's Americas during the week, and she genuinely sounded worried. She did not subscribe yep. to the headlines in the New York Times and the Washington Post that this is going to be some sort of whitewash. Um, yeah. She was saying things are really in a dead heat down there. What what I'm trying to get at here is what I the feeling that I'm getting from the Trafalgar polls, but also from what you two have said so far, is that 
things are going to be actually really close on the night. And is it really... I mean, if I was to ask either of you at this point to put your money on it, I don't think either of you would be willing to do so, would you? Graham? Well, I, you know, I'm not a gambling man. And again, having been spectacularly wrong the last time, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to try to be I'm going to try not to be spectacularly wrong this time. But it is going to be close on the night because there's just going to be a lot of counting to do. And that's I mean, we're not going to get the usual result whereby sort of a certain point in the morning here, sure. you know, like early, like six o'clock in the morning, we're going to have an idea of, of who the president of the United States is going to be. Uh, and it's, it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride. Um, you know, all the Senate races are, are a lot of them are too close to call. And uh, and again, Florida. I mean, there's tens of you know, millions and millions of people who who are still going to be, you know, being counted by the by the time we wake up in the morning. So we talk uh, yeah, about, it's going to be um, a wild ride. We talk about media bias often in one direction from an Irish perspective. Um, reading some headlines, I can't remember was it the Washington Post or the New York Times during the week. It, there was a sort of an arrogance to it. One of the headlines was something about uh, like just by how much is Biden going to win this election by, assuming that Biden is going to win. Um, are these uh, publications sleepwalking here, Graham? Yeah, I'm actually really conscious of the sort of democratic bias of, of Irish punditry, and I, I try not to be part of it. Um, uh, but so I try to stick to sort of facts. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of pundits and a lot of publications who are who are getting pretty complacent, and the Biden campaign, to be fair, is warning people against complacency because they're really worried that that tone up, turnout will be depressed. Uh, and again, Joe Biden can win the popular vote by ten points, but if he loses Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, he's in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Now I wanted to uh, before I get to the debate, which I will in a second. Uh, this thing about the national polls really pisses me off, and I'll tell you why, because. All you see in the headlines is about national polls, about Biden leading, but it doesn't tell us anything because it, this election is going to come down to a small handful of states. Your Californias, your your New Yorks, etc. They don't matter a whit. What really matters is you know your Floridas, your North Carolinas, your Ohio's. Um, with the electoral college, Greg, can you try and explain to us why? the national polls aren't worth looking at? Yeah, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. And in, in the last few elections, they don't matter as much because, yeah, you're right, it comes down to a couple of swing states. But remember, there's there's a lot of, you know, yeah, I mean, California and New York are, are very blue and reliably Democrat now. I mean, you know, I don't think a Republican hasn't won California since 88 and probably the same, I would guess, in New York the last time was 84. But there's a lot of red states, big red states like Texas and Florida, that are, or Texas is reliably red, not not as reliable as it was, you know, in the past few elections, but still reliably red. And so, you know, it's the the electoral college is designed to protect to protect against the tyranny of the majority. You know that that where minority groups can be excluded from from politics because the the majority has has gone one way or the other. And, and it's overwhelmingly, and it originally was designed to protect the rural populations, and to a certain degree, it still does. But I think that it's it's designed to make sure that that the majority rule doesn't become you know tyrannical, and and it also forces the the candidates to campaign 
more broadly. You know, there's no they, they ignore California um, because they know they're not going to win it. it. It's become a fundraising hub. But, um, you know, it's it's sensible to protect the minority. OK, OK. And, so let, let me just pick think, you up yeah, on that for a sec, Greg. So mm-hmm. you're saying that the Electoral College is designed to protect the minority. But the Electoral College, it doesn't appear to me to be representative or fair. Let's take California, as you mentioned, and Wyoming as another example. Wyoming being one of the least populated states. Now, Wyoming has three electoral votes and a population of 500,000 people, while California has a staggering 55 electoral votes and 39 million residents. This means that a vote in Wyoming has 3.6 times more value than a vote in California. How is that justifiable, Greg? Well, it was designed this way quite deliberately by by the founders. And I think, you know, look what happened in France a few years after the Constitution was 250 you know, years it, ago. It, well, no, absolutely. But it's still it's still the case today. And I don't, I don't think that you'd see as much criticism of the Electoral College if it was the other way around, if, if the Republicans were winning popular votes and and uh, minority demographics in, in, in different pockets were overlooked or overrun. So I think it's very important. Um, you know, it's not it's not a democracy based on popular vote. It's it's a democracy, you know, based on the rule of law, and and they're very deliberate in how they protect that. And and again, it was designed to protect certain minorities, and those certain minorities will change over time. But I think it would be dangerous to to allow, you know, two densely populated urban centers in New York and Los Angeles to to control the the electoral outcomes okay. in the country when the country is very diverse. I mean, what happened to diversity and inclusiveness? You know, I forgot about that. Okay, it's, um, it's only you know, it's hysterical that the the left just is obsessed with identity politics, but when it comes to the electoral college, they decide that's not. Graham, do you want to respond briefly to yeah, that with I mean, your thoughts about the electoral there's a college? Sort of, there's a sort of bright side and a dark side to the electoral college and its and its origins. So, you know, when they tried confederation as states, um, and it didn't work out, so they're going to come up with a federal constitution, even though that was heavily resisted. But, you know, the states were really worried about each other. You know, there were small states and big states, and some of the states had, you know, run up big bills and deficits, and they were worried about that being, you know, pushed on to the federal governments. Um, and at the same time, you know, they were trying to figure out how to count the population. And, and so they came up with what, with what was called the three-fifths compromise, uh, because you had all these slave states with relatively few free people, but a whole lot of enslaved people. And so they decided that slaves count as three-fifths of a person. Um, and so that led to, and that was translated straight into the Electoral College, because it led to Virginia having more Electoral College uh, delegates than uh, I think it was Massachusetts, um, because while it had a much smaller uh, population who could actually vote, then, you know, but they had a very large slave population. And so this is the dark side, and it's the sort of okay. uh, the beginning of minority rule in the United States. That said, I think there's a lot to what Greg says. I mean, it's a, it's, uh, some people even say this is a republic, not a democracy. And in fact, the institutions should represent people in this complex and indirect way so that every part of the country is represented, even if it's really small. Okay, now I don't want to talk too much about the debate because it's already been analysed a lot already. Um, But, uh, Greg, the tone from the president was 
quite different uh, this time around compared to the cluster shambles of the first one. Do you feel (laughs) that he proved himself to be what the Americans love to describe as presidential? Yes, I think, yes. The answer is yes. And it's all relative, of course, you know, compared to, you know, the, the great orator Barack Obama or the great communicator and Ronald Reagan, no. But compared to his normal, you know, delivery and his normal unfiltered way of of, uh, of delivering a message, absolutely. And so he did a great job. He was well advised because you're absolutely right. The first d- debate was a complete debacle. And, uh, you know, I think he did a really good job last night. A lot of the stuff I'm reading, even from the left-leaning media, is – that at the very least he won or he did well. And of course they'll say that's not going to affect the outcome and it doesn't matter. But, um, and I, and I wouldn't argue that it will, it was not a knockout blow, but he won on points. And I think he was very deliberate in not trying to, to hit a home run because that could have led to a disaster. Sure. Uh, Graham, Graham, most commentators agree that there's between three and 6% of undecided voters. Now, I don't know if, there's still that percentage at this late stage. But do you think undecided voters were given an opportunity to become decided voters last uh, in, the, in the last debate? I think that's a really good way to put it. So if you're an undecided voter who'd really like to vote for Trump, but you're troubled by a lot of things about Trump's behavior over the last few years, you could look at that debate and say, oh, well, you know, maybe because I like his policies, you know, I can I can live with this. And perhaps he's learned from this scare he's gotten from Biden over the last election that he's going to not say all the horrible things he, he and behave the way he has done for the last four years. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, if that's what they want to do, they're going to do it, you know, whether the heat Trump was great in the debate or not. Again, part of it is managing expectations. So the expectations for his behavior were so low that he can seem sort of like a, a winner just on the basis of not showing up and interrupting people constantly and abusing yeah. people's family. He's still stuck to a lot of his talking points, which are often intensely personal and abusive. And uh, and Joe Biden, on the other hand, didn't fall over. And so, you know, a lot of people are But was someone watching last night going, oh, okay, now Penny has dropped, definitely going to vote for Trump now after what he did last night. I don't think anybody's going to do that. Anybody who's definitely going to vote for Trump is already definitely going to vote for Trump. Okay, last question. Greg, um, Last uh, in the last debate, Trump described himself. He said, uh, nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump, speaking about himself in the third person. Love it. With the possible yeah, exception of Lincoln. Um, yeah. I mean, like, it's hard not to laugh. I'm sorry, but it's really hard not yeah. to laugh when he says something like that, isn't it? But do some I- Americans actually think that's true? Uh, yes, because it is true, with the exception of possibly Roosevelt and Johnson. But what Roosevelt and Johnson did was set up the Great Society and and you know a massive welfare system, which in many ways might have actually backfired because it trapped generations of African Americans and inner city people into into cycles of welfare dependency. So, you know, look, it's a bit of hyperbole, but there's no, there's no doubt that he has done more for African-Americans than Obama and Biden did. And you can make a good argument that he's done more than anyone except Lincoln and, again, maybe Johnson and FDR, depending on your view. Okay. If you think welfare is good, then LBJ and, and FDR could run circles around Trump. If you think opportunity and wage growth and, and reduction in poverty, 4.1 million people came out of poverty during the Trump years, 8, 785,000 people entered poverty in the Obama-Biden years. So 
yeah, it's, I know, and it's laughable because it's just so obscene to even think it, in, especially in Europe, but it's actually true. Okay, for, Graham Finlay question. from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Thank you so much to you both. Race to the White House on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House here on News Talk. Simon Tierney with you this hour. Right, let's go back in time. It's our weekly segment from the archives. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Donald Trump bucked the trend in 2016 as one of the very few people to win the presidency without having any previous political experience. Most winners of the office will have been senators, governors or vice presidents. But what can we learn about the job from examining what presidents did before they took office? Trump may have been the king of reality TV in the noughties, but he's not the only president to come from the world of show business. Ronald Reagan, of course, was a Hollywood actor from the 30s to the 60s before retiring from the screen and becoming governor of California in 1966. Here he is in Bedtime for Bonzo, a 1951 comedy about a psychologist attempting to teach morals to a chimpanzee. It's fairly simple. A lot of people think they're born better than others. I'm trying to prove it's the way you're raised that counts. But even a monkey brought up in the right surroundings can learn the meaning of decency and honesty. George Bush Sr. had a long career before becoming president at the age of 68 in 1989. After the Watergate scandal, Bush was made director of the CIA in 1976 with a mission to restore the reputation of the agency. I'm going to approach this job with pride and they can have all the jokes they want on television about the CIA. It's vital to the national security of the United States. And I feel so dedicated and strongly about it that I just wanted to wedge that in, apropos of no question you've asked. As he recounts at length in his first memoir, Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama spent a key part of his early career working as a community organiser in Chicago. Here he is speaking about it in 1994, many years before he would become America's first African-American president. I hooked up with a church-based community organisation out in the far south side called Developing Communities Project and ended up uh, directing, uh, directing their organising efforts for about four years, I guess. Uh, and we were involved in a range of things. We, uh, we worked on uh, setting up job training programs in the community. We set up counselling programs for young people to get them into college. We set up uh, uh, projects whereby people would clean up their streets, uh, uh, remove uh, vacant buildings, uh, a whole range of different community issues. Uh, that really taught me a lot about uh, both the, the possibilities uh, and the problems that confronted the black community in Chicago. So I consider that one of uh, uh, my best, uh, best decisions coming to Chicago originally, and, and uh, I've stayed there ever since, although in the interim I went to law school. Before being elected America's youngest president, John F. Kennedy had fought in World War II and had written a number of books, at the tender age of 23, he gave his first interview to promote his 1940 publication, Why England Slept. In a particularly prescient moment, he imagines one day working for the United States government. And may I ask, what are your plans for the future? Well, I don't know exactly yet. I'd, I'm interested more or less in working 
sometime in my life for the government, but I haven't really decided as yet. Well, that's very interesting. 20 years later, almost to the day, he was sworn in as President of the United States of America. Madeleine Westerhout has a unique perspective on Donald Trump. For two and a half years, she worked at a desk just outside the Oval Office, working as personal assistant to the president and director of Oval Office operations. She garnered a reputation as the gatekeeper to the commander-in-chief before making an unfortunate mistake that resulted in her very public firing from the White House. Her new book is called Off the Record, My Dream Job at the White House, How I Lost It and What I Learned. Madeline, thank you for joining us on Race to the White House. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. So, Madeline, uh, President Trump told people that if they wanted to talk to him, that they needed to go through you first. He once said, Madeline is the key. She is the secret. How did you decide if somebody could speak to the president or not? <laughs> well, the president is so unique that, and in his role as, as commander-in-chief because he wants to be so available and accessible to everybody at all times. And so I think in the past, there has been a lot of protocol about how one can reach the president. And, and Donald Trump really made it clear from day one, honestly, that there would be no one that wasn't worth his time um, or his energy. And so he, um, in, in that specific uh, reference that you're referring to, he was, uh, had, had not got, Bob Woodward, uh, the journalist had not gotten a hold of him. And he just told Bob Woodward, you know, call Madeline directly. And that's what he did with pretty much everybody that he wanted to speak to rather than going through the, the chain of command, if you will. He just said, call Madeline and Madeline will put you through directly to me. And um, many times, CEOs called, members of Congress called, expecting to just get a voicemail or leave a message for the president. And I, I put them through right away because he wanted to hear from everybody. OK, now I want to try and demystify what is going on in the West Wing, because the what Donald Trump describes as the mainstream media, they have characterized it as sort of chaotic, to say the least. Can you take me through a typical day in the West Wing when you were working there? So you would arrive, you'd go through security, head to your desk outside the Oval Office. And then what happens? Sure. So then, um, you know, I waited for a few hours for the president to come down. I think it's pretty well known that the president doesn't start his day in the Oval Office until around mid-morning, you know, 11, 1130 and that's because um, he is upstairs in the residence working at the crack of dawn. And I think he really likes to have that kind of personal one-on-one, like um, private time to really get a lot of work done, get some phone calls done, do some reading and watch the news. And then once he comes down to the Oval Office, it is full steam ahead, 100% all the time. Um, he would usually start his day with an intelligence briefing and then have lunch in the private dining room off of the Oval Office, and then continue throughout the rest of the day with, with meetings, whether they be meetings with members of Congress, meetings with major CEOs or members of the cabinet, um, you know, trade associations, uh, policy meetings. And, and I, I would really say that it, it wasn't chaotic. It was constantly um, lots of energy all the time. I mean, I, th I think anyone uh, watching the election and the campaign right now can, can tell that President Trump has a ton of energy. Um, and he really brought that energy to the West Wing. And 
And with regards to stories about chaos, it's just it's just not true. In I- terms of this executive time in the morning, Madeline, so he's upstairs in the presidential residence. I know from following the president on Twitter that he does a lot of his <laughs> tweeting in the morning. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> he tweets on average 33 times a day. And a lot of that is in the morning during this executive time. I understand that you sometimes helped the president to compose his tweets. How does his tweeting work? I'm curious about that. Like, does he have his own mobile phone or does he dictate his tweets and somebody else types them up? Both. Uh, He does both. He would sometimes dictate a tweet to me if he was in the Oval Office. You know, he usually didn't have his personal, uh, his own device with him. Um, So he would call me into the Oval or or another member of the staff and, and dictate a tweet and then we would type it out and bring it back into the oval so he could look at it, maybe make some edits. Was there and then... ever a moment when <laughs> you were taking a dictation and you thought to yourself, mm, is this really a good idea for the commander in chief of the most powerful country in the world to be tweeting this out? Sure, absolutely. And I think the president actually um, stated in an interview not too long ago that he knows that some of the tweets uh, he could have gone without. And so, you know, of course, I don't love every single tweet. I don't think anybody loves every single tweet, even if they're the biggest fan of the president. But I do defend the tweets because we have a commander in chief um, who, who gives it to us straight, who goes past the media and talks directly to the American when people. When he does tweet, Madeline, he'll often use uh, caps lock if he wants to really make a point or he might use exclamation marks. I'm trying to imagine when he does that and he's dictating that, is he actually shouting when he's dictating his texts? Can you feel the tone of the text live when he's doing it? Uh, sometimes, sometimes. Um, usually when he does the all caps, those are those are all him. But he when he does dictate tweets to me or what to, when he did dictate tweets, um, you know, he definitely would add in the punctuation uh, and say, our country, comma. Uh, and so he, he adds his own, uh, has, has own punctuation and, and makes it clear how many exclamation marks he wants. <laughs> wow, really specific. OK, now let's get to the meat of this. Um, and in terms of what your book is about, Madeline, you suffered a very public departure from the White House in the summer of 2019. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? I understand you were in New Jersey on a trip with the president. Yes, we were finishing up a 10-day trip at his property in Bedminster, New Jersey. Um, It was the last day of the trip, and I had the day off, and the president really encourages the staff to kind of take advantage of the amenities at his properties. And so I was laying by the pool. Um, I had had a couple of drinks by the pool and ended up accepting an invitation to an off-the-record dinner with four reporters and a White House colleague of mine. And at that dinner, um, I said some things that that I didn't mean and, and that I really shouldn't have said. And that information did not stay off the record. It got back to the president, and I was asked to resign, which I did. And, um, you know, was very lucky to be able to speak to the president after I resigned and, and apologized directly to him. And, and he forgave me, accepted my apology, and I still have a good relationship with him and the family. Um, but I wanted to write my book kind of about that experience because it was devastating for me. Um, but, you know, everyone makes mistakes and, and mine just happened to play out on an international stage. OK, now, one of the key things which you were alleged to have divulged to 
those reporters that night at the infamous dinner was about the first family, which um, is that the president didn't like being in photographs with his daughter, Tiffany, because he perceived her as being overweight. Now, for a lot of people, including myself, this tells me a lot more about the character of President Trump than it does about Tiffany. Is he, if you stand by those remarks, is he a cruel man? Uh, first of all, I absolutely do not stand by those remarks. Um, I think what of a lot of what was reported, I allegedly said, was was taken out of context. Um, but you know, I, I do take full responsibility for for what happened that night. But President Trump loves his family. He loves all of his children, and um, he has a very kind and gentle heart. Um, and I think anybody who reads my book will will be able to see that. Sure. Um, there was a couple of days then after your departure from the White House, Madeline, the president seemed to, on the face of it, he seemed to threaten you via Twitter. He said, quote unquote, while Madeline Westerhout has a fully enforceable confidentiality agreement, she is a very good person and I don't think there would ever be reason to use it. Now, this strikes me as typical of the kind of tactics of intimidation that the president uses. Did that tweet frighten you? Um, no, it didn't because I, I knew that I wouldn't ever have to, um, that there was nothing negative or, or untrue that I could say about the president. And I think the president has been burned by a lot of trusted aides over and over again. Um, but I think he also knew that, that there was nothing that I would, uh, divulge that would hurt him or his family. Um, I had an amazing two and a half years working for him. And when I told him about my book, he was ecstatic and supportive. Um, but I think, you know, he, he's been burned over and over again. And I think sure. it's a little bit of a defense mechanism. You had such a unique access to such a powerful person, Madeline. I'm interested because there's so much information about what Trump is really like, but you actually know. Can you give us a sense of what he likes to do for fun, what his hobbies are? I know he likes playing golf, but does he enjoy reading books? Does he enjoy listening to music or watching films? He loves old films and he loves music. Um, what's really funny about him is that he actually adds a lot of the songs uh, to the route when he has rallies. You know, they play music beforehand and he would often YMCA. To, he loves that yeah, song on this campaign. He, he would also cut. He would come into the Oval and say, "Add, you know, Frank Sinatra to to the playlist." And he was very hands on. Um, he loves old movies. Uh, I think. Does you know, he one read time, books? Uh, I'm I'm sure he I'm sure he reads. You know, I'm I'm oftentimes not with him uh, in in the but residence. You, you never but, saw him reading a book. Uh, not in the Oval Office. Uh, he was always working. So he was reading the paper. Um, he was, you know, reading briefing materials. But when he was in the Oval Office, there really wasn't any downtime. So he wasn't reading books. He wasn't listening to music. He wasn't watching movies. He was working. Um, but I have no doubt that that he reads in his spare time. Uh, in the book, you describe the president as connecting with people on a very intimate and sort of caring level I'm just wondering because it uh, and I hope you can understand where I'm coming from with this Madeline but when we see the way he writes his tweets or when he talks about someone 
that he is dismissed from his administration. He tends to use very abrasive, pugilistic, often insulting language where he will often pinpoint the physical characteristics of a person, often a woman, um, and he will often attack their IQ. It's hard for us sometimes to reconcile what you're saying in your book with what we see. Can you help me to, to, to bridge that gap? Sure. Um, look, the president is not perfect. He's never claimed to be perfect. He has a very strong personality and that rubs people the wrong way sometimes. Um, but I, I sat basically next to him every single day for over two and a half years. And I know his heart. He is a, a very kind person. He cares about the American people. Um, he's fighting every single day to make the lives of the American people better. Uh, you know, he, he, his personality is the type where he's not going to take things lying down. And from the day he announced his candidacy in 2015, he's been attacked by, by the left, by the media, even by his own party. And so, um, sure, you know, I think, sure. I believe if, if he, if he thought he was being treated fairly, then his, his rhetoric might be toned down. But the man that I know, um, sure, is, I is incredibly gracious and kind. Madeline Westerhead is the author of Off the Record, My Dream Job at the White House, How I Lost It and What I Learned. Madeline, an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us on Race to the White House. Thank you so much for having me. Race to the White House on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House with me, Simon Tierney, here on News Talk. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at Newstalk FM or at Tierney Simon. But first, let's call the White House. Thank you for calling the White House. I know our president is as concerned about the problem of drugs in this country as most any other problem we could have because it's a raging problem. Of course, um, I guess I might be qualified to say a word or two about drugs. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? And that was Johnny Cash there performing at the White House in 1970. News Talk's Shane Hannan joins us for his weekly slot. Thank you for calling the White House. Shane, um, what was Johnny Cash doing in the White House there at that time? Yeah, it's an interesting one, the Johnny Cash visit, because when you think about people visiting the White House, I guess you don't think about the politics that they're going to bring with them. So Johnny Cash didn't quite sing I Walked the Line or A Boy Named Sue when he visited uh, President Richard Nixon. He clearly had issues that he wanted to bring up. So uh, Johnny Cash was someone who was very uh, serious about prison reform. He is someone who had spent a bit of time in, in, in juvenile prison for minor offences in city and county jails when he was younger. Um, and earlier that day, when he visited uh, President Richard Nixon, he had testified before a Senate committee on prisons. So he let them know in, about his past and he, he felt the prison reform was something that was very important. So this was July 1972. Um, and I guess the controversy that came up after this visit uh, from Johnny Cash to President Richard Nixon was that Nixon had asked him to play a couple of songs. He, he said to him, Johnny, would you be willing to play a few songs for us? But he suggested a couple of songs. So he suggested Merle Haggard's Oki from Muskogee and Welfare Cadillac by Guy Drake. So both of those songs had uh, expressions of right-wing disdain to them. You know, the first was about Vietnam protesters and hippies. 
and the second was about poor people who cheat the welfare system. So he he chose a few songs of his own. So he first sang What Is Truth, which kind of has a bit of an anti-war second verse. The next song was The Man in Black, uh, which kind of shows a bit of solidarity with the oppressed, the sick, the lonely. And then the final of three songs he played was The Ballad of Ira Hayes about the plight of Native Americans. Clearly Cash had chosen these songs and uh, I guess he used his visit with President Richard Nixon to, to highlight his own his own ideals, which which maybe Nixon didn't didn't take too kindly to. Uh, sticking with Nixon, Elvis Presley uh, did visit that White House as well, that administration. Um, he didn't perform, though, at the White House, did he? No. Elvis arrived at uh, half past 12 on December 21st, 1970, to the White House in a purple velvet suit. He had a gold belt and a Colt 45 pistol. Wait, um, he, at- was, he was packing heat. Packing heat, visiting the White House, as you do. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was taken off before he actually visited the Oval Office itself. But uh, quite a, quite an extraordinary decision to to visit the White House with um, with a Colt 45 pistol on your on your person. So, and I understand that he he wanted some sort of federal agency badge. That he had this obsession about getting a, a badge. What was that about? <laughs> yeah, it's quite bizarre because this was at the height of Elvis's fame and. Uh, Priscilla Presley, of course, his longtime wife, wrote in her mem- memoir, Elvis and Me Afterwards, that this narc badge represented some kind of, quote, ultimate power to him. So she said with the federal narcotics badge, he believed he could legally enter any country, both wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wished. So the irony is, you know, he was going to the president to highlight the issue of drug abuse among young people. And he he felt there were, there were communist brainwashing techniques, meaning young people headed towards drugs. Elvis was 35 at the time, but as you mentioned, he had this ob- complete obsession uh, with badges. So he had this collection of police badges. He wanted a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs and to be named a, quote, federal agent at large. At the end of the, the meeting, his aides, or President Nixon's aides, wrote, he was given an honorary badge. Elvis spent the rest of his life apparently thinking it, this badge was the real thing. So uh, clearly he was quite happy from his visit with President Nixon. And the photo I should mention as well, Famous photograph of Elvis and Nixon in the White House. As of 2015, it was the most requested photograph in the entire U.S. National Archives. So an it's an iconic meeting. photograph, isn't it? Because he's in the purple suit. He's in the Oval Office. And didn't he go in for the hug as well? Like yeah, Richard he went... Nixon, he never strikes me as the kind of the most huggable type of character. But this is pre-Watergate, I guess. So he was he still had some of his reputation intact. Now, I got to ask you, one of the sports people who seems to have visited multiple White House administrations is, of course, the Brazilian footballer Pele. Tell me about <laughs> him. Yeah, it's, this is bizarre because... If you Google Pele White House, what you will find is uh, Pele with a number of U.S. presidents. This guy has uh, has been to the White House quite some times. So um, there are there are famous photographs of of Pele and, and Gerald Ford at the back in the the Rose Garden kicking the ball, and the flared trousers completely date the photograph. You can tell it's in the 70s. Uh, he had also visited Richard Nixon when he was president, signed a football for Richard Nixon. He visited Ronald Reagan and uh, March 28th, 1977, uh, at the height of his career in America when he was playing with New York Cosmos at this time, he gave a soccer ball to, to President Jimmy Carter during a White House visit and uh, asked Carter to sign that ball for him. So uh, this was quite a strange one. Even uh, Trump um, mentioned Pele at a White House meeting in March of last year when Jair Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, visited. Uh, and he said, you, won't, you know all about Brazil being the great soccer power. They have great, great players. I can still remember Pele and so many others. Uh, you you have you've had a fantastic history. So whether he was bluffing or not, uh, President Donald Trump says he remembered all about Pele. So clearly, someone who enjoyed these visits, and Andy Warhol as well, who is someone who was obsessed with Pele, 
Um, and he had a famous quote about 15 minutes of fame, and he predicted 15 centuries of fame for Pele. So uh, Andy Warhol, another person who had been to the White House quite a number of times and painted a portrait of Pele. So uh, both of those uh, two okay. people who, again, had, had, had seriously lengthy visits to the White House. So uh, a random one there, Pele. Now, when we were discussing the topic for, for this week's Thank You for Calling the White House, I wanted to do this because I came across a bizarre photograph of Nancy Reagan, <laughs> President Reagan's wife, sitting on the lap of Mr. T in the White House. It is the most incongruous photograph I've ever seen of a White House uh, first lady in the White House. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, this was really, really strange because uh, by all accounts, Nancy Reagan apparently was someone who, uh, you know, her character would not, you would not expect this of her character. Michelle Gullion, who's an archivist with the National First Ladies Library, she said it was so unexpected, but it is a side of Nancy Reagan uh, and she could have fun different times. But this was a few weeks before Christmas, 1983, um, and Nancy had invited the entire Washington News Corps to tour the executive mansion's holiday decorations and meet this guest of honour. So uh, a very famous guest of honour, Mr. T, the A-team, of course, at the height of its fame. Um, and she asked, or Mr. T was sitting there asking journalists, the video, you can see it on YouTube, by the way, and he, he's asking journalists to sit in his lap. And now I come all the way to the White House and nobody wants to come sit in my lap. Nobody wants to. And a male journalist eventually comes over and sits in his lap a little bit sheepishly. But a few moments later, Nancy Reagan breaks all ideas of protocol that anyone might have in their head, comes over, sits on Mr. T's lap and then proceeds to kiss him on the head as well. So you can even tell by Mr. <laughs> T's reaction. He's clearly in character at this point in time, but she is uh, she's going along with the fun. So she clearly felt that, you know, he was raising awareness for her just so just say no campaign. Uh, which is uh, an anti drug, which was an anti drug message for children. Famous anti drugs, yeah, because this was uh, the President Reagan and Nancy Reagan. Their war on drugs was a big thing, and her mm. her part that she played in that was about reaching out to young people. And I suppose she saw a celebrity like Mr. T as a conduit towards <laughs> delivering that message in some way. Oh, he was totally used. I mean, she she knew by kissing him in the head and sitting on his lap. Those uh, Washington press corps journalists that were sitting there. We're going to be taking those photos. They were going to be in the, all over the front pages the next day. And uh, it was an absolute masterstroke because it brought lot, a lot more awareness to that Just Say No campaign, which was already well known. But Mr. T, um, you know, he, he clearly brought a lot, a lot of awareness to the campaign because of uh, that, that quick little moment. It only lasted a, a number of seconds, but clearly was something that resonated with the, with the press and what a yeah. famous photograph as well. Uh, before we finish this week's slot, I have to ask you about Princess Diana because they're some of the most glamorous photographs from the Reagan White House. Um, there was a particular banquet which involved uh, John Travolta and Lady Diana, wasn't there? Yeah, and that Travolta dress, uh, that famous, famous dress, once owned by Diana, Princess of Wales. So it was worn for the first time at this gala dinner uh, at the White House, November 1985. It was when this took place. And named after Travolta, of course, John Travolta, with whom the princess danced at this dinner. So this was in the East Room uh, of the White House. Um, and, you know, standing up, one of the most memorable things as well that the press picked up on, and I guess press like picking up on gaffes from politicians as well, that uh, welcoming Prince Charles and Princess Diana, President Reagan in his after-dinner remarks, um, welcomed uh, Prince Charles and his quote lovely lady Princess David so by accident called Princess, Princess David Princess. <laughs> yeah <laughs> quite a bizarre one miles off <laughs> just a little bit off she doesn't look like a David to be fair but uh, that's that was an extraordinary moment as well and, and Princess Diana we talk about famous photographs and clearly the Elvis one is well known but 
everyone will know that famous photograph of uh, Diana dancing in that famous dress uh, in the East Room at the White House with John Travolta. So, again, probably one of the more famous uh, White House moments, and it really raised her profile in the United States as well. I mean, a survey calculated in the 80s said she had generated 66 million, over $66 million in revenue from magazines, books, and tourists. So clearly people who hadn't known her in the US to that point uh, really resonated with her uh, after her White House visit. So really, really famous meeting. Thank you, Shane. Shane Hannan will be back next week for another edition of Thank You For Calling The White House. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to Race to the White House. Do subscribe to the podcast on the Newstalk app or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to producer Claire Collins. Join us next week as we continue our countdown of the Race to the White House.